today is February 8th, 2018. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is Marco Gallio, who is Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Northwestern University. Hi, Marco. Hi, hi. His lab uses a, a highly sophisticated experimental toolkit to look at basic principles of sensory coding and decision making in the relatively simple nervous system of the fruit fly. And around the room, we have Alfonso Apicella. Hello. We have Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And Lindsay McPherson. Hi. Welcome, Lindsay. Is this, is this your first with us? My first. My yeah, first, yeah. This is our, one of our new star faculty, Lindsay McPherson. So, Marco, your lab uses uh, temperature sensing and preference in the fruit fly, Drosophila, which we all remember from our high school genetics experiments, to traverse the full circuit that entails encoding temperature signals and then using that representation to integrate and process the output behavior of the CNS. We've had a bunch of recent podcasts about embracing complexity. So I think it's worth having you tell us about some of the dimensions of the system in terms of why we think it's more tractable and useful and what aspects of, of the system interest you in. This question about complexity is interesting. I think uh, matching the complexity of the question with the complexity of the system is, is a skill, right? And the fly is a good model because the brain of a fly is made up of 100,000 neurons only, rather than 100 billions, but like our brain, but the, the, the complexity of the behavior that the flies can produce is actually quite astounding, right? Flies can navigate as they fly around and process trajectories and fast maneuvers. They can land upside down on the ceiling. They have, they have aggressive behavior, so males will fight with each other to, to, to secure a territory where they can attract females to mate. They actually sing a song to the females. I mean, they, they, they have an astounding a big repertoire of behaviors that are reminiscent of what you see in nature with birds and other more complex animals, but they can do all that with a brain that with an, only 100,000 neurons. So this is, for me, is the best match for the type of question I want to ask of a complex behavior with a simple anatomy of, of the brain, plus, of course, sprinkle into that the fact that you have these amazing genetic tools that allow you to do very, very sophisticated experiments on the fly. So is that like a more complex system if you can produce a larger repertoire with a smaller number of neurons? Todd, I'm looking at you. <laughs> well, so people go, this argument goes back and forth, and a lot of the invertebrate uh, people, some people argue, well, the neurons are just more complicated, or whatever. It's very hard to say whether this thing is more complex or more simple. Uh, the the numbers of of neurons are less, right? But if there's a bunch of mass coding in one thing and a bunch of specialized coding in another, then who knows? But there is the simplicity often comes in terms of like uh, more in terms of experimental methods and stuff. In the Drosophila, you have all these tools. Uh, and that's often where the simplicity comes from, just your accessibility. Whether the system is more simple or not, that's kind of up to what you do with it. I mean, people study very simple behaviors or whatever, mostly just because they are, they can. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a deep insight on that. I mean, there is a there is a soft spot here. The, there are some systems like C. elegans where there are very few neurons that do a lot of different things, each of which does a lot of different things. and. In this case, it seems that that particular animal, for evolutionary reasons that are not that clear, has evolved under the pressure to 
do away with as few neurons as possible, right? So each of them can be an interneuron in a circuit and also sense something and release a number of peptides. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. The fly brain seems to be a little more like ours, where different circuits do specific different things. But, uh, but of course, it depends on what kind of processing we are talking about, right? For the things we know about, it seems to be more, a little more like ours. For the things we don't know, like learning a memory and stuff, it might be, it might be completely different. So even, even so, 100,000 is still a lot of neurons, and you don't study all of them at once. How many is, how many neurons are actually engaged in the kinds of experiments that you're right. doing? I think what the, when we say that these circuits are simpler, we are talking about, for example, for a, a particular cell type, we we study hot and cold processing in the brain. Okay, so a neuron that transmits information about hot has it, it's made up of a unit of five to ten cells for each side of the brain that does it as far as we can tell, exactly the same thing. So this is compared to some of the pathways that transmit information to the, the, the thalamus or whatever, to the cause where there are hundreds of thousands of cells that are doing the same thing, and they are a cell type, right? So our particular cell type is made up of 10 cells in the whole brain. We can recognize that those, we can patch them, we can profile them, and so that's that's where the numerical simplicity comes into play. We can actually patch every single cell ten times within a month or two and, and, and really define very well what's happening in that population. Right? For hot and cold, why have it duplicated on the two sides of the brain? Like for our eyes, we can have stereo vision, but there's their stereo sensation of hot and cold. Yeah, I mean, a lot of sensory systems are organized that way, right? There is a there is a whole debate in olfaction over if the signal that comes through your two nostrils is compared in a way where you can actually better detect the source of the odor, right? So if, I'm sure I did a journal club on that yeah, paper. Exactly. It was a, what was the, the, the author? I don't know. I forgot what her name was. Was it? Anyway. But yeah, so I was like, it was stereo smell sensing. So I, when I introduced the journal club, I had this like headphone, picture of a headphone over the nose of the, of the mouse <laughs> because can you smell in stereo? Yeah. I mean, there's a famous cover of Journal of Neuroscience where it represents the following experiment. They put undergrads from some university, I don't remember which, and they put a mask on them with two little tubes going to each nostril, and then a, a chamber in front of those tubes that would either had a fan in it, so to, to kind of mix up the odor that as it was incoming. And that control group, this was the control group. The other group instead had the two nostrils distinct from each other, two tubes distinct from each other. And then they put them in a football field, and they asked them to be, to find some dirty socks that were left in the field, right? And they had to uh, kneel down and smell and try to figure out where those dirty socks were put. And apparently the group that had uh, stereo smell did a little bit better than the group that had the... Uh, uh, so is there like hemispheric dominance? If you had one smell on one side and a contradictory smell on the other side, <laughs> one side would win? No, I don't know. But that's in fly, for example, in fly olfaction, people have shown if you remove one antenna, which is also site for, you know, where the sensory neurons are, you have, uh, you, you don't follow a plume of odor quite as well as if you have two. So there is a, apparently there is comparison between left and right input. I have a follow-up question on that. In the olfactory system, correct, we always have these 
type of representation, correct? You go in a room, you smell coffee, and there is few cells that light up in the brain, correct? Then we know that coffee is complex, correct? It's not only one odor. But then you smell pizza, and you have another representation in the brain. But if you smell pizza and coffee together, a new population emerge. Have you seen any parallel with the cold Is that hot? true? I didn't know that. So there's a... Th uh uh, it's not just additive? The, uh, no, the, it's not only additive. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I mean in, the, in, the, in the early centers, right, where sensory or sensory representation, you, you can get more additive effects. And then as you go to the center where the binding happens and you come up with a, oh, this was coffee as opposed to a random mixture of chemicals, there are these super additive effects and these crazy things, right? I don't think we are there with our work yet in terms of anatomy. But also, I don't know that the complexity of temperature is that, because there is not, I mean, of course, mixtures of chemicals that make up banana would be super interesting to a fly, much more like similar mixture that make up some. So that's, that was my next question. So temperature is like a, it's a molecular movement signal, right? So what is it, like, how, you know, mercury expands and contracts. What is it that these well, antennae? Yeah, I think that's very fascinating. Right? That has to do with what I always say, that we study how the sensory world is represented in the brain, right? So what I mean with that is that we don't really represent parts of the physical uh, world that we don't need to represent, right? So each, each sensory system is a very well-tuned filter that only allows in things that we care about and we care about because they are significant to us. For temperature, the, the reason there is hot and cold, I mean, this is a physical continuum of things, right? But simply we represent hot things that are above our best spot and cold things that are below that best spot. There is no reason why there shouldn't be two or four or six ranges of temperature like there are colors, right? So the, the different animals have, the, have different color spectra they can distinguish and see, right? The way those filters work is completely adaptive to that particular animal. Turns out, for temperature, it's relatively simple. You just want to stay away from extremes. And uh, so things that are above the, 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 the favorite range are, are, are represented different from these that are below, and presumably that allows you to navigate the environment better, right? But the representation is much more simple, and because it's used in a, simply for navigating away from dangerous things, right? So why five neurons on each side? Why not? Well, no, this has to do with the, with the simple anatomy, quote unquote, of the fly nervous system. Also, the neurons that are equivalent to each other that uh, represent, that hook up to a particular odor, for example, that be two or three. So the, the, the all, uh, this is the all numerical simplicity of circuits in the fly, right? The only, Structure, one of the few structures that has much more numerical complexity is, for example, the mushroom body, which is where all the more complex computation happens. The fly, again, quote-unquote, cortex or cerebellum, where learning memory, the other things like that occur. That's the only structure that has 2,000 cells for hemisphere. All the other, the large majority of the other circles that we know are, are made up with fewer, many fewer cells in the, in the realm of 5 to 10 for a particular cell type. So is every, every cell is, uh, is unique or is there redundancy? So maybe there's fast adapting, slow adapting, uh, right, there's uh, a broad uh, right, right. So each of these would be three to five. Some, each, each one of them has yeah, three to so five copies. For, for all that we can, so we know very well our system, right? So I cannot generalize too much. But in our system, we can tell 
these three cells are identical for uh, for all we can we can do. And they have identical connections as well. Yeah. So that's really redundancy. That's there is a the minimum redundancy of in three cells to do the same thing, right? Which is so many fewer than in other systems like a mouse brain. Right? Well, I think in the mouse brain we don't know how much redundancy there is, and people just go around saying yeah. things, but they're just this making a, it up. Another super interesting thing is the concept of what is a cell type, particularly in the brain, right? And people have this idea that they will be able to find a gene expression signature that tells you this is a unique cell type, or this other is a unique cell type, but things become much more complicated because, of course, during development, things can hook up and wire in different ways. Even if they, in the adult, have the same gene expressive signature, they could be connected to do different things, right? So that's another kind of worms, and we work on flies. So. So, so the gene expressions of those cell types been been done? Are they in our? So, for, we are doing that for ourselves. There is, a, of course, a very active area of research on doing gene expression profiling for all cells in the fly brain, right? So, so the most extreme, also in the planaria now, actually, the most extreme efforts have to do with profiling expression from every single cell in the brain separately, and then through clustering figuring out what it means to be a cell type, right? And so that seems to be really interesting and it could give some very interesting result. Of course, if you find a hundred, a hundred thousand cells that have a very similar gene expression signature, which is very distinct from other cells, of course these cells are likely to be related, right? But, but I think there's still another level of complexity, which means even if they are very similar, even if they are the, uh, narrowly tuned, fast adapting projection neuron, this cell could be connected to hot and this cell could be connected to cold and therefore do very different things, right? So, but in any case, we're soon we'll have a very good picture of, at least for when it comes to gene expression, what is the amount of complexity and noise and variation that there is between cells in, in a brain, in, a, in the entire fly brain and then eventually in the mouse brain, right? So, do, uh, uh do larvae have the same temperature range as the adults? Does anybody know? The larvae also have temperature preference. They have a temperature preference that is close, well, close enough to the one of the adult flies. They don't move quite as fast, and they are not quite as accessible to electrophysiology, for example. But uh, there are, I mean, the advantage with larvae is that the brain is even more simple. Which, I just, in other words, could be a disadvantage. If there was a difference, <laughs> that you would, then you would, it would be interesting to know what presumably the same neurons are now detecting a different temperature yeah. range. So the, 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 there is, so far as we, there are no significant, you know, striking differences yet. The other thing with the larva, so the fly larva is nearly a different animal than the adult fly. So all the larval tissues really get to be broken down and discarded. There are very few things that be, even in the brain, that get to be kept between larva and adult. So most of the adult tissue are either dormant or growing a little bit during the larval stage, and then the, the, the entire system gets to be rebuilt during the pupa. So. Was there some experiments trying to figure out if, if there is memory between the larva stage yeah. and the adult stage. Like, could you get it, get the larva to prefer some smell or some odor, and then have it remember that smell in a in the adult? I, don't, I can't remember if that was actually done. <laughs> I think there is some. Uh, I think I want to say it's from uh, the Siddiqui, Obey mm. Siddiqui, who's a famous uh, a student of Benzer, who was the first one who started all this uh, fly behavior field, right? Who did some? I, they had these are old papers, but I think there is something where 
if a, if a, if a larva is grown in an environment with it laced with some sort of pitch smell, the flies that emerges after pupariation would tend to, to prefer that pitch, pitchy food than other types of food, which makes sense because the flies are generalists, but they would probably find out, uh, end up in an orchard as opposed to a different orchard and things. I don't think that's been followed up much as far as I know, but it's interesting. So some of the tools that you're using are these incredibly uh, precise functional mapping activity-dependent um, types of tools that you and Lindsay, I think, have been yeah, developing good. now uh, since how long has it been? The first paper was, was it 20, 2007? Yeah, we, were, we started it back in 2000. Yeah, I think you should say <laughs> First paper was 2015, right? The paper, yeah. No, no the first paper was 2011. Yeah, 11, yeah. We started developing in the, in the morning of 2011, and by the evening, we were it's so, so, so can you t tell us about some of those? I, yeah, I know it's old news for some. But I mean, the original idea was to, to, to use them for both flies and mice. Yeah, and so, so we started, we, yeah, the idea, eventually I wanted to use it in, to look at taste connectivity in the, in the tongue, um, which ended up being much more difficult than I had planned. But, but we wanted to make these tools to, to kind of look at circuit connectivity in, in sensory systems. So, and Marco was like, well, you should use the fly as their you know, model organism. We can do a lot with the fly, make all of these different types of you know, changes and test them out quickly. And, and it worked great. Like we just made all these different types of grasp uh, variants so that they would be you know, specifically expressed within the, the, um, at, the, at, at the surface of the synapse. Um, which made it really much more uh, tidy interaction than before, where we had everything on the just all over the membrane. And so, and then also by doing that, we were able to get kind of like an activity-dependent readout of the the nerves when they were exposed to some stimulus. So we tried it in temperature, we tried it with odorants, we tried it with in the retina when they were receiving you know input from from light stimulus. So yeah, it worked in a really good range of uh, of sensory systems in the fly. So then Marco used that to kind of test out whether his uh, like second order neurons were connected to his hot and cold mm -hmm. uh, sensory cells. Well, so the, the the original idea, I guess, was to get a reliable marker for synapses that are real active synapses. So real synapses, as opposed to two neurons touching each other and passan or other. And then serendipitously, we discovered that the system actually created a persistent la label that reflected the previous activity of the neuron. So if if we fe left a fly for like, uh, these this, this, uh, heroic experiments where we left a fly for 10 minutes in a in a baker with, the, again, banana odor or peach odor, and then kill the fly, sacrifice the flies <laughs> and image it uh, an hour later, and we could see a boost in the signal in the specific synapses that were activated by that particular odor and differentially for different others, right? So we, we had a persistent label that had a window of persistence that allowed us to to, do, to let the fly do something and then read that pattern of activity in the brain later on. We didn't expect that at all. I mean, that came out from the fact that a lot of the experiments we were doing with temperature gave very variable results, right? So we expected to have uh, active signal and across hot and cold equally, but then some days the hot seemed a much more powerful signal than the cold and vice versa. So there was something going on and we figured out that variability actually 
was coming from the temperature we were, keep, we were keeping the flies at. And our collaborators found the same thing with the individual system, right? So flies that were grown in where we're supposed to have this signal at the synapse between photoreceptor neurons and second-order neurons in the visual system, if they were grown in the dark, they wouldn't get nearly any signal at all. Only if they grew them in their regular fly uh, lab condition, they would get a signal. And so even, even before that, when we were testing them, very young flies... They hadn't had very much experience. We just, you know, looked at their brains right after eclosion. They're very low grass signal. But then we wanted to see something, you know, brighter. We were just like, well, we'll check them out later. So, and they had more experience, more sensory experience. And the grass would get stronger. And uh, in addition to just the, the expression of the two halves, it, that was part of it. But most of it was just actually the, the experience of the fly. I don't think that's been exploited quite uh, uh, yet completely there is I think there's more interesting stuff to be done there because the, the fact that you can label so for a while we've been able to label neurons based on activity right which is this arc false activity markers but we can we haven't this is the first time we are able to label specific synapses based on these activities so what we were we were proposing the paper we haven't done much of it yet but hopefully we'll do more is to be able to see at the strengthening and weakening of synapses, which we now can label in different colors, right, on the same target neurons based on experience. And we can have the fly do their thing. And then we still have a window of one to four hours to see what these changes are like, right? Because the, there is this uh, soft spot where the persistence allows allow us to see what was happening earlier on. So, and that's, that there are interesting experiments that haven't been done yet. Okay. <laughs> I thought there would be some huge technical discussion. Cutting this out. Okay. So what is the acronym? GRASP. GRASP. GFP reconstitution across synaptic partners. Okay. Yeah. Did you long. come up with that? No. It was it was originally made uh, in Corey Bargman's lab. Uh, yeah. So they they did it in CL against first, and then we kind of glommed onto the idea and thought we could make it better and more you know broadly useful. So. Then, then lots of pe other people have done stuff too in, in flies and mice and, and things. But yeah, Christine Scott, they yeah. also had a fly version in the Zipurski's lab. They had another fly version. It's been widely used in flies, mostly to as a poor man's uh, way to to detect connectivity or to to prove connectivity between neurons, right? Because it's very very straightforward. It's just in fly, we have genetic control over orthogonal system for genetic controls of neurons, so you can express part A in this neuron, part B in this neuron, if A and B come together at the synapse, you'll see a glowing red signal. So it's very straightforward. Everybody can do that. Now, finally, they're getting some of that for, for mice work. So with the combinatorial, like, CRE, DRE, uh, FRT, like, all those, we can finally start to use a little bit better control, like like you've had for fly for some time. But now it's just kind of starting. Like Hong Kuizen and all those guys, uh, like uh, Alan Brain Atlas, are coming out with these multiple combinatorial overlapping, you know, strategies and stuff. But you got to spend a lot of money for your mice. <laughs> <laughs> so we've so we've gotten from the input to the representation level, you've characterized the different responses of some of these neurons to temperature, the, the sort of fast, slow, the adapting, and, and, and now we're headed more toward the output side. So the, yeah, yeah we're still working on the, re the representation. I mean, there is a lot of complexity already that emerges, to go back to your point of complexity, from the first, at uh, the first synapse, right? So the sensory neurons, there are only three of them, for cold and three of them for hot in, the, in each antenna. 
and they have a, a whatever pattern of activity. This, amongst the second order neurons, so the neurons that receive that information, there is already a, quite a difference of in the type of responses we see, right? So cells that, that, that respond to temperature change, so to the initial temperature change and then stop responding, and cells that instead have a much more persistent activity. So we are following up in different directions. First, we want to know how they do it, because that I think that's a microcosmos for what uh, we can learn from a connectome, right? So if in a simple circuit where we have total of 20 cells and one synapse, we already see these emerging different properties of the second-order neurons, this really makes us, you know, think in a different way what we, we can learn from just knowing the connectivity in a whole circuit diagram of the brain, right, which we'll, we'll have a fly very soon. So if, there, if we already can have that level of complexity on a simple synapse, that's, that's a daunting, right? And we think that the, a lot of these emerging properties, differences come from intrinsic differences between the cells. So that's one thing. The other thing we are asking is where, how is this kind of information used differently in the brain, right? So the non-adapting or slow-adapting cells have a persistent signal that is there for as long as the temperature is cold or hot, right? Whereas the fast-adapting cells simply signal a change on a much shorter time scale. So we are following up both the circuits or the cell types where these two signals converge, but also what is unique for each, right? So we are thinking that the slow signals can uh, modulate behavior on a much lower time scale, like in a circadian or a, a sleep, which are heavily influenced by temperature, right? Whereas the fast signals are much more uh, useful when navigating in a fa- in environment with moving around or flying around, as you said. Yeah, on a much faster time scale, right? So we, we are finding differences in, in the connectivity downstream of these neurons that reflect these different functions in the fly. Have you tried silencing just like those prolonged responding ones? And what do they do? Yeah, so these are the ones that, the, the ones that respond in this lower time scale are the ones that uh, are influencing behavior on that time scale, like it's a daily rhythm of sleep and wake, okay. for example. So right? they, mess, they have messed up circadian rhythms? Not so much circadian rhythms, but more like uh, sleep patterns. Uh, the, the sleep patterns seem to be very strongly influenced by temperature. So, for example, flies, if you graze the temp- flies tend to sleep a little bit during the day and then a lot during the night, of course. So but if you, yes, if you <laughs> heat up, if you heat them up, they'll, uh, they'll sleep longer during the day. They have a midday siesta. And they, so there is a whole lot of, uh, temperature influences on, on this, uh, when the siesta occurs and how much they sleep during the day that have to do. This is all the new stuff that we are dying, so. It's really cool. Why? I mean, why, why wouldn't the fly just integrate the fast signal to get the slow signal? I mean, I, I, I'm sure the fly has its reasons. It doesn't have to explain itself to me, but I was, I would just think if you have the fast responding neuron, you don't need a slow response. I mean, the fast response in order that we see only fire at the outset of the temperature change. Mm. Oh, oh, I see. They're, they so are the, only... If you integrate it, you would have to have like a timing... You have to integrate twice yeah, in that yeah. case. Yeah. You have a derivative. I mean, one question that is interesting too is why do they have hot and cold as distinct lines? Why don't they have... And that's where C. elegance is different from flies, different from humans, different from mice. That's why... That's what my original argument came from. You could think of a neuron that functions as a thermometer, right, where there is a firing rate, 
And then if the firing rate goes up, it's hot. If the firing rate goes down, it's cold. Right. So that's a, probably the simplest system you could build. And C. elegans seems to do it that way, but flies, humans, mice. Actually, when I started this work, I really want to study sensory representation and sensory maps. If that turned out to be the case, my work would have ended there, right? Because <laughs> you cannot have a representation of a single neuron that tick, tick, measures temperature. I, it turns out I was lucky, and indeed the representation is more similar to the one we have in our brain, the fly one, right? But uh, it's an interesting point of discussion to think about why is the system organized that way, right? Why don't we have a single neuron that can do on both ranges? I mean, I have a couple of ideas, but yeah, I'm, also curious, I'm also curious to know what you think about that. You first. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of things, right? For example, if you want to be able to tell that the temperature is changing very quickly because you want to get out of there. So in order to be able to have a fast enough uh, readout of temperature change, your, your thermometer neuron at constant temperature should be firing at pretty high firing rates. Because when you get to the non so imagine cooling slows it down and heating speeds it up. If you're at 20 hertz and cooling slows to 5 hertz, in order to know that it's cooling, you have to wait maybe 2, 3, 4, 5 seconds and count all the spikes and be sitting there and fi to figure out that it's actually cooling and what temperature is it is. So in order to make an efficient system like this, you need to have a very high firing rate, which is fine, but might be costly. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that the, having two channels, one that fires more upon heating and the other one that fires more upon cooling, will give you the ability to filter noise that is uncorrelated, right? Because the, the, the two systems will signal in the opposite way, so... So every noise, the noise that affects both yeah. channels common be correlated. Mode, common yeah. mode rejection. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. So these are two ideas. I only have two ideas, so don't ask me <laughs> Great. <laughs> it sounds like you could do like an experiment because there are only two alternatives. So then, yeah, so does it, do they, do they help each other out? So if you, if you just silence the heating ones, um, does that have effect on cooling to some extent? Yes. Or is it just not, you think maybe it does, but maybe it's hard to measure well, That's that. a good, that's a, what the one of the original question we had, right, was if these are really independent channels, so if you remove the hot, imagine they both feed into one of these broadly tuned cells and that's where the call about temperature is made. So if that is the case, removing the hot channel will completely screw up the temperature reading and, and so would remove the cold channels. Turns out, if we silence or kill the cells that respond to hot, cold avoidance is not strongly affected at all. In fact, we would be hard pressed to see any effect. But what happens if you remove the cell that receive both cold and hot? We see an effect on both cold and hot, but not a hundred percent. I mean, there is still space. I mean, there is still some avoidance. You saw the, you saw the data, right? So the the avoidance is reduced in both hot and cold, but it's not reduced to zero. So the, that's the idea in the second order la layer where there are these differentially tuned neurons. They also cooperate. They are differently tuned cells cooperate to mediate, to modulate behavior, to mediate behavior. But they respond with increases. Uh, the ones that respond to both hot and cold respond to increases. To both, yeah. To both. Yeah. So to either or whatever. To either, right? So that, then it's like a, a extreme thing, right? So they're not they're not responding. You can't tell what the temperature is. Right. But right. they, these it's are not the only cells. These are, yes. 
Exactly. But these are not the only cells there, right? So that you can get that information from another channel right next to you. So how many cells are there second-order neurons? Again, this is what I was referring to. For each particular cell type, there may be three, four, five cells. And so far, we have identified uh, eight different cell types. No, no, no. Six or seven different cell types. So I'm just wondering how the total cell number in the pathway is changing as you move across the synapses. It doesn't sound like convergence. Sounds like no, I mean, the, the next order neurons, some of the targets are the mushroom body, right, where there are 2,000 neurons, so that's where the big numerical uh, increase. So far, we are, we are three sensory neurons for cold, uh, maybe three, four cold-responding second-order neurons classes, each of, each of them made up of three, four neurons. They have unique targets as well as shared targets. Some of them go to the mushroom body, which is this complex structure of 2,000 cells where they get to be integrated with other sensory stimuli. And from the sending neurons, we are also, or next order neurons, which has just started to characterize more recently, we also are in the realm of a few cells. So what's the right number of orders? I mean, there's, a, there's so many synapses from the input to the output, and they're like in these separate structures, kind of like layers. Right. So, so the minimum the right that we found is probably four, four cells. So we have we have started to identify what we call the sending neurons that target the motor centers of the spinal cord, uh, not the spinal cord, the ventral nerve cord, which is spinal cord dish. Yeah. And uh, so that's the minimal circuit we think. But this is early days. We don't don't quote me on that in um, years. But I don't think it's going to get much more cells than that. So it seems to me that these are questions that come up in you know, mice and humans that we have no hope of answering. People answer them anyway, but there's no hope of answering <laughs> them right. And, the, and that yeah. is, like, why, why is there a thalamus? Why can't the retina cells just go straight to the cortex and do their work? And, and the thalamus doesn't seem to get you much. And like, it doesn't seem like it's, it, you're gaining a whole lot by going through the thalamus on your way to cortex. But, uh, and people just say that. It's just idle speculation, right? But, the, but in your system, maybe you have a chance of well, we answering the question. So but you're second-order neurons. Second-order neurons. Second order, yeah, I know. So that's an interesting thing. Of course, at, the, at each step, having a new synapse, we add the possibility of more processing, right? So even at the first synapse, we are having processing and also carrying that information to different places in the brain. So when I say the minimal circuit, that doesn't mean that there are no circuits that take a more complex route where some process occurs and maybe we'll gate the output of that simple circuit. I see. So the idea is to get anatomical fan out. All right. You've got lots of targets to go to, so you don't want to have that many sensory neurons. So you basically make duplicates of the signal and a bunch of neurons that go to different yeah. places. Yeah. And, they, and then you have the chance to control, you know, to plastically control what happens to the signal separately. So there should be more at each step as you go along. Yeah, it depends. In the, in the fly brain, generally speaking, there is a lot of processing that happens early on, which makes a lot of sense. So the, this early center, like the antenna lobe for others, are innervated by Lots of type of interneurons, uh, excitatory, inhibitory, with different neuropeptides. So there is a lot of process, even for hunger signals, right? In the fly olfactory system, a lot of hunger system signals modulate the activity of the sensory neuron themselves. So you, 
you smell more or less pizza depending on how hungry you are, if you're a fly. <laughs> so a lot of that processing happens early so that the information that then gets to be transmitted is, my, is already processed. Yeah, this is exactly what they say about mammals. So maybe fly isn't a big advantage in, in this particular thing because we just sort of speculate about, about it. It's not something that we really can nail down yet. Yeah, but if, if you have the, the, the level of answer that you potentially could get, right, is at the level of uh, gene differentiation. Like, how do you make something that goes here versus there, that they're same, similar in one way and different in something, some other way? And how do you decide to start to break them up versus some flexible thing? I don't know. Can you do... Uh, uh, so this is general principle ideas that you can get. Yeah. That can you do important. conditioning on temperature? I mean, you can use it as an unconditioned stimulus to, to well, it's one of the classic ones you can use to teach flies things. I mean, flies for... But how about for conditioned stimulus? Can you make them prefer hot versus cold for something? I, I don't think anybody has ever tried. I mean, you have to fight against their instinct yeah. to run away from it, right? Who was it? The uh, the other Marco, or no, that was uh, Aurelio Gali came. He's doing autism research in fruit flies. And he was just talking about some of the constraints or the difficulties of doing any kind of flight behavior stuff with these cameras that require incredibly high acquisition rates. And But he's, I mean, apparently this is like now there are a bunch of you guys doing more complex behavior on flies. Yeah, I mean, the... Traditionally, the fly behavior was not as sophisticated as other uh, anim types of animal behavior. But I mean, the technology is getting cheaper and easier to use. And I mean, it's also a cultural shift because the fly neuroscientists are becoming much more like your regular neuroscientist, right? As opposed to being more of a genetics, geneticist type breed. So more and more of us can code, can build to photomicroscope, can do electrophysiology and things like that. So we are lining up more with the more, you know, the, the rest of the community of neuroscientists. And so I think that's a great benefit because we bring this power of genetic manipulations and we acquire a lot of these uh, tools for imaging and, and electrophysiology from other fields that make the system even more powerful, right? So. Excellent. Thank you for joining us, Marco oh, thank Gallio. Thank you very much. It was fun, yes. <laughs> this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>